This podcast may include adult content. Bound Off is an independent non-profit audio magazine committed to paying authors for their work. To join us in our mission of broadcasting great stories to a worldwide audience, please consider dropping us a dollar or two at boundoff.com slash donate. Welcome to Bound Off, a literary audio broadcast. In this edition, we have two stories, Unthinkable Bugaboos by Mandela Ruby and Telescope by Naomi J. Williams. Unthinkable Bugaboos, written and read by Mandela Ruby. Listening time, 7 minutes, 11 seconds. Unthinkable Bugaboos. Outfitted neck to ankle in Crayola pink scrubs, the home nurse identifies herself as Sloopy Delizio, County Health, and steamrolls past me into the apartment. Stethoscope round the neck, skin the diluted brown of hot cocoa, plastic bin of yogurt and juice bottles in arm. Today's the first time I'm present for the monthly delivery, checkup, and light housekeeping that Seda has sung the praises of. This is bound to be good. I scoot to switch off the counterwalling TV, glancing over my shoulder to watch the squatty little nurse deposit the supplies receptacle on the floor so she can raise Seda's limp forearm. When I get back to the bedside, the nurse is pressing the wrist pulse point of our patient, who has no trouble sleeping through the handling, the snap of chewing gum, and Nurse Delizio booming, Lady always in bed? as she studies her digital watch. I nod, though just weeks ago my neighbor walked well enough for a field trip to St. Henry of Uppsala Church. Then it was unfathomable that now I'd be looking back fondly at the grief workshop I'd brought Seda to. The nurse inserts her stethoscope ear bits and lifts the chest ring to Seda's nestled breast. Her eyes swivel and strain to focus as she works, as if she's misplaced her glasses. Condition is worse, she hollers. The pain in her legs is. I mimic a pillow shape with pressed-together hands and pretend my head's asleep on it. Would you lower your voice? Nurse Delizio slits her dark eyes as if that helps her listen to the pulsations rising from the slumbering body to her ears. Our visitor could be legally blind for all I care. It'd still be a relief to have her monitor Seda's vitals. This onslaught of sclerosis is a mad dog I don't know how to kick down. I'm just a neighbor and friend, not someone equipped to deal with something that doctors call incurable. I'm no healer. I'm a punk rocker. The medical exam wraps up as quickly as it started. The nurse has done all that can be expected. Confirm the afflicted is still alive, still in need of public health services. The bin is retrieved from the floor. I bring to eat is good, the nurse says. It's me who's been gallivanting around town, scrounging up groceries and supplements to entice some nourishment down Seda's numb, stiff throat. This payrolled caretaker whizzes in, pro tem, and assumes I'm not providing? That's screwed up. I fix a lot of smoothies, I tell her. Smoothie, ah ha ho! Again she puts the crate on the floor. She draws Seda's blanket down. Change de sheet. I put on fresh bedding this morning. She brushes her palm over the bed linen as if determining its cleanliness by feel. Is change, she declares and leans down to study the patient with her googly eyes. Something wrong, I say. 
The stethoscope ring dangles near Seda's nose. Sloopy doesn't seem to notice. Her slantendicular vision might be a defense mechanism to spare herself the sight of rack and ruin. Is bad, de-skin, she finally says, restraining the instrument's swinging tubes. I rub aloe vera gel on it. Ah, ha, ho, aloe, she repeats with a loud chuckle. She rehoists the supplies and walks them to the kitchenette on her short, efficient legs. I'm not joking, I say, tagging behind her. It's a natural liniment. As she loads Martinelli apple juice and shrink-wrapped Yoplait couplets into the fridge, I find myself wanting the rations to include berry yogurt instead of lemon, which Seda dislikes. But I doubt any declared preferences would get communicated to the supply chain. The nurse seizes the sponge mop leaning against the sink stand. The floors had a recent encounter with Mr. Clean, my main man, but if our handy helper wants to go back over it, add a girl. She pinches a corner of the damp sponge panel and glances at the floor. Is you mop? Last night I sang Real Wild Child and swabbed the decks, stopping now and then to frug dance a la Iggy Pop to make Seda laugh. If I was this rotational nurse, I'd be thinking, who is this chaboobly Yahtzee doing this bang-up job taking care of Seda Pollard? I is, I say, smiling. Sloopy replaces the mop. It's done. Okay. Coffee, I say. I can make some quick. No tanks. I busy. She's not busy here. The place was borderline antiseptic before her arrival. Even so, I'm strangely comforted by her presence. I follow her back to the bed. She covers Seda's mangled knot of a body and misaims a smile at the overturned box that serves as a nightstand. The eight or nine outpatient cases each day this nurse must handle, multiplied five days a week, add up to unthinkable bugaboos. Hell of a job she's taken on. Thank you for coming, I say. We truly appreciate it. Bye for you, lady, she softly tells Seda. You in good hand. Vindicated to pieces by her words, I wish this Oompa Loompa could stick around and not race off. A little company to break up the monotony. A chance to ask how long she's been looking in on Seda and what can be done to ease her plight. Though Sloopy's immigrant English might not stand up to in-depth exchange of info. And anyhow, she's already halfway to the door. Do I pay you, I say, catching up to her? Is pay Alameda Health Department. Next month I'll save the mopping for you. We both glance back at Seda and I know what she's thinking, but I'm thinking, hang on, Sloopy, there's still a chance that Seda will power through this setback. Ah ha ho, the nurse says and looks me in the eye for the first time. Get de power of a tourney. De what? Make easy, de hospital everything, de power of a tourney you get is good. I guess, yeah, I mutter, my emotions roller-coasting down a headlong plunge I wasn't ready to take. The nurse removes a small item from the waist pocket of her scrubs top and presses it into my hand, a packet of chiclets gum. Am I to give her some token gratuity in return? There's nothing here to give, and what is this gum? A sympathy offering? Delizio darts to the lobby and then outside to lend assistance elsewhere. I linger at Seda's open door, as if guarding against a future that's not welcome at this house. The six remaining squares of shiny white gum tumble from the packet into my palm. 
I toss them into my bazoo and grind out a speedball sugar rush is good for fugitive seconds. Medella Ruby is a former punk rock DJ and current community college professor. Some of her recent fiction has appeared in The Binnacle, Emprise Review, and Literary Mama. Telescope. Written and read by Naomi J. Williams. Listening time, 13 minutes. Telescope. We lost the Calder in 1825. I was never afraid, during the wreck or after. By then I had come to understand the uselessness of fear. It was one of the things I learned, living on board as the captain's wife. I had not set out to learn it, of course. That is the way of lessons at sea. They come at you without warning, without your curiosity, without your consent. Like the telescope. I had certainly never wondered how it would feel to have a telescope break in pieces over my head, but I learned it all the same. That was a month before the wreck. I had occasionally tried the telescope, but never could see what the men saw, though I looked till my eyes ached for looking. I had good eyes for writing, even in the poor light of our stateroom, and a clean, steady hand, even in a rolling sea. Ay, Mary, you have a beautiful figure on the page, the captain liked to say, laughing as he admired the journal entries he dictated to me. But good eyes and a steady hand do not suffice with a mariner's telescope. An instinct for sighting, fair weather or foul on the horizon, danger or opportunity in a landfall or distant sail, the white foam that signals deadly shoals, that instinct I lacked. When the telescope first struck me, I thought we had run aground. I saw my servant, an Indian girl I called Nancy, grab my daughter and lead her below. I had time to wonder, before the next blow, if they would be safe. I thought we'd struck rock, and it amazed me how it felt like my own skull cracking. And it would have been, had the telescope been a finer instrument. That is what our Bengali steward said to me afterward. A man with enormous eyes and a mouth hidden behind an overgrown mustache, he tended to me in my cabin. And I wished, not for the first time, that we'd chosen the man who spoke no English. But even parting my lips a little sent sharp, slicing pains through my head. So I said nothing, and he talked. He reminded me about the cheese. That was the provocation, burnt cheese. He told me that before I fainted, I tried to collect the pieces of the telescope as they fell around me, wood splinters, broken glass, brass fittings, and tried to put them back together, kneeling on the deck. He told me the captain had carried me down the companionway himself, that he had wept, that he had said, Mary, you careless, careless girl. I don't doubt that the captain carried me down, or that he wept, but I expect what he really said was, Mary, you careless bitch. I was retrospectively grateful for the poverty of two years before, which had led the captain to the second-hand telescope, made of soft wood, wood that yielded in the end to bone. But under the gratitude and relief, I felt a low throb of despair. For I knew him, I thought I knew him, and I never would have believed he'd destroy his only telescope, even in an extremity of rage. He was so careful with his belongings. 
I was able to speak again the next morning, so I dismissed the steward and allowed only Nancy to attend me. I preferred her silence. She neither avoided nor sought out my glance. When our eyes did meet, she did not look away in shame or disgust. Nor did she try to communicate judgment or pity through some meaningful contraction of her eyebrows. She kept my daughter occupied and quiet in one corner of the room, and after feeding me broth she washed the blood from my head. I could scarcely feel her hands as she combed through the matted hair. An exemplary servant she was, that day. By evening I could walk, and shading my bruised face with a bonnet, I made my way on deck after supper. Most of the men only nodded in my direction, though even in the gathering dark I could tell which faces showed fear and which pity and which contempt. Only the new men, two Tahitians who'd come aboard a few weeks before, looked at me with open curiosity. And only Mr. Bailey, the third officer, spoke to me. "'Mrs. Dillon,' he said, "'I trust you are recovering from your fall.' The captain did not look at me. He looked at the starboard rail, regarding the southeast horizon through a telescope, a telescope I'd never seen before, longer and darker than the one he lost the day before. I called the steward to take me back to my quarters. "'When did Captain Dillon get that telescope?' I demanded, once we were below. The steward nodded, as if he'd expected the question. "'He bought it before we left Sydney,' he said. "'It is English. Mahogany and leather and brass, thirty-five inches when fully extended. "'You did not know about it, madam?' He was not like Nancy. His dark eyes searched mine, asking me to look back. I turned aside and dismissed him, so he did not think I smiled for him. For it had not been the captain's only telescope after all. With the arrival of the new telescope, it had become an extra telescope, a discardable thing, a destroyable thing. A piece of my pain lifted away, turned over like a page that's been read, and a small bubble of hope rose through me. Perhaps hope is too bright a word. What I had was a task. But what is hope? if not something to do. I started collecting things the next morning. I knew the captain would leave me alone. He always did afterward. This time I reckoned on one day, perhaps two, and worked with a will, gathering anything that was damaged and replaceable, anything we had more of than needed, anything he did not care for. An old cutlass I wrapped in sheets and stashed in the bottom of a trunk. I hid away chipped plates and dulled knives and an outdated nautical almanac anything that might be thrown or used to pierce, strike, or whip. One fog-bound night I tossed overboard an old musket with a broken frizzin. Three days later the captain blamed Mr. Bailey for the loss of a receipt. He grabbed something off his desk, and Mr. Bailey put up his arm, expecting the volley. But it didn't come. Instead the captain stood there regarding a bust of his hero, James Cook. I'd placed it on his desk during my tidying up replacing a broken microscope he was wont to throw. "'What the devil!' he cried, then dismissed Bailey, shouting about incompetent officers. My whole body felt lighter at that moment, but there was still so much left to do. "'We must look for things Captain Dillon does not need,' I told the servant that evening. In answer to his questioning stare, I added, "'Anything that might be in his way.' "'The headdresses from Tahiti?' I shook my head. No, not items for trade. Things for himself. Things lying about. He regarded me for a moment, then his eyes widened. 
The missionary man gave him a book. Where is it? We found it holding down a corner of a map in the stateroom. Jonathan Edwards' account of the life of the late Reverend David Brainerd. I almost laughed. A book less conducive to the captain's taste could scarcely be imagined. It would serve to weigh down charts until it was thrown at someone. Hide it, I bade the steward. He nodded, a conspiratorial smile visible despite his mustache, eyes bright with approval. I thrust the book at him and turned away, my face burning, knowing I'd made a mistake. Foolish man! He understood my strategy but had no skill at dissembling. He was caught shaking out a tablecloth over the side, a tablecloth in which he'd hidden bent silver forks. "'But, Captain,' he protested, looking over at me. I stared back, willing him to silence. He received a dozen lashes for the lost silver. The captain administered the punishment himself. "'A skipper ought not deal out penalties as he can't see through himself,' he liked to say. I hated the steward for his stupidity, for very nearly betraying me, for his animal yells. Nancy and I stayed below with my daughter, who cried out as the lashing began, covering her ears and crying for me to make it stop. I tried to sing over the noise, but Nancy refused. Crouched in the cabin with my daughter on her lap, her face remained still, unflinching, as above us each hideous tearing crack of the lash punctuated her countrymen's long, importunate screaming. "'Nancy!' I shouted. "'Nancy!' But she did nothing, and I knew then she'd done nothing the other times as well, that she allowed my daughter to hear everything. She looked straight ahead at the space I occupied before her, but refused to see me. Another crack and wail filled our ears, and I reached over and slapped Nancy hard across the face. Her brown face opened for a moment in shock, but as quickly closed, resuming its usual dispassionate mien. I'm ashamed to say I wept then, though I cannot say why I did. When it was over, we heard someone call out that he'd sighted land. We stayed below until the men had untied the steward, taken him to his berth, and washed the deck clean of his blood. And then we went above, where I found everyone looking, not east, toward the beckoning coastline of Chile, but west at the dark line of storm pursuing us. I was glad. Whatever happened, I knew the crisis would bring out the captain's best self. And so it did. He never lost his composure. When we were finally driven ashore and beached, he carried me out of the calder first, then our daughter, then Nancy, setting us down on safe ground. He returned to the wreck and brought out the steward, laying him on his side. When he knew everyone was on shore, he tried to go back for some of the cargo, but the officers prevailed on him to leave off, shouting over the din that the calder was lost. And as if in answer, the surf began to batter her to pieces before our eyes. I saw him sink to his knees in the surf and howl into the storm. I could not hear him over the wind and waves and lashing rain, but I did not need to. Everything we owned and owed was on that vessel. I got up and heaved him from the water's edge, dragged him to higher ground, and pulled a sodden woolen blanket over ourselves. I drew him weeping into my arms. I thought, Captain Dillon, you careless boy. But aloud I said, Hush, Peter. We shall start again. It will be fine. You'll see. 
he was still looking out to sea. God, can you imagine the horror of being out there, he said. I could. For this is how it was when the telescope broke over my head. It flashed like a sun and smelled of sulfur. And after that moment of partial coherence, when I thought we'd run aground, when I wondered if my daughter was safe, I passed into madness. And I believed, truly believed, that I was the ship, that I had run aground, that the cracking and splitting that rang in my head were my deck staved in, that the keening whale was my hull shivering itself apart. I did not wonder at it. A ship is a living thing. It can sicken. It takes on water and worms and barnacles from without, and fear and resentment and secrets from within. A ship eaten away at like that cannot survive for long. The steward would sneak off during the night and disappear into Valparaiso. But first we huddled together on the beach, officers and crew and servants, the captain and our daughter and me, irrespective of station, and watched in helpless wonder as the waves pounded our ship into splinters and dragged her innards out to sea. I was glad to see it go, for all it meant we had nothing left with which to buy or sell. It would take a long time for the captain to amass another arsenal of incidental objects. Naomi J. Williams' short fiction has appeared in journals such as One Story, A Public Space, Southern Review, and American Short Fiction. She's won a Pushcart Prize and an honorable mention in Best American Short Stories. She lives with her family in Davis, California. Listener-supported Bound Off is made possible by grants from the Kern Family Endowed Fund and the President's Fund of the Greater Cedar Rapids Community Foundation. Further support comes from the Google Grants Program. Thanks for listening to this edition of Bound Off. Copyright Bound Off and the respective authors. All rights reserved. Visit our website at boundoff.com for information about our broadcasts and how to submit your stories.